in Nehemiah 5, with that first reading in verse 14. You might remember that Nehemiah is seeking to help the people to build the wall around Jerusalem. And as they do so, they've experienced opposition from outside, those seeking to attack them. They've also received opposition from inside, those who are undermining the work. And beginning at the end of chapter 5, Nehemiah leads by example. He faces several conspiracies as well into chapter 6. And then he's going to give us a very important record from which we can learn some great lessons about leadership in chapter 7. First, we see Nehemiah leading by example in chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. The issue here is that for the governor of Jerusalem, which Nehemiah has recently been appointed to that role, that governor was expected to get his salary by taxing the people in a unique way. So the people had to pay a sort of land tax to the king back in Persia, but they also had to pay a sort of tax which would provide the salary for the governor. But Nehemiah refuses to levy that tax and refuses to accept anything from the people. And we see what happens. He says he was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah. And he says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. That is, we didn't get our food the normal way, which was from the people. But the earlier governors, those who preceded me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver, that's the the weight of silver in the Jewish uh, reckoning, from them in addition to the food and wine. So the governors before, they took food from the people, that was a part of the tax, and they took money from the people as a part of the tax. And he refuses to do either. He says, even their assistants, that is, even the servants of the governors, also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. What he's saying here is, I didn't come to set up shop or to make a lot of money. And even my servants, along with myself, we were working on the wall too. My servants weren't out collecting taxes and wasting time. They were working on the wall. But that does beg the question, well then, how is Nehemiah getting paid? Where is his salary coming from? And how is he providing all of this food that we're going to find out? He needs to feed 150 people every day. And he's doing it out of his own pocketbook. Now, verse 17, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. So all the fellow governors, or, or you might say assistant governors, deputy governors, etc., anyone who was anyone there in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, It was expected that the governor would host them at his table. But also any officials traveling from Persia through the land of Israel or through the land of Israel to Persia, anyone who worked for the government, it was just an expectation in any of the provinces of Persia that if you were passing through, you had uh, letters from the leaders there in Persia that you were expected to be taken care of, given food, lodging by whoever the governor was of that particular province. And so this is what he's doing. Each day, verse 18, one ox, six sheep, and some poultry were prepared. Also, a great deal of wine every ten days was restocked. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. Remember those heavy demands they were experiencing? They already had a famine going on. They're all giving up a lot of their work whereby they might get money or remuneration because they're working on the wall, as God has commanded. On top of that, you have the tax from the Persian king that they have to meet, and they have to send that. 
And so he says, I'm not going to add one more thing onto them because as it is, they're already having to mortgage their properties and even sell some of their children into slavery. And he had just gone against all of that in the previous chapter. Verse 19, remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. He lives off his own money. Once again, we see Nehemiah being generous. Not just a sort of initial generosity, but an extreme generosity we might see. And we'll see even more examples as we go on. But not only that, he's helping with the work. He and his servants, that is the individuals he had brought from Persia, are there helping build the wall. He's not just sitting back and calling the shots from a distance. And he realized that for a people who are already struggling, in order to force them to pay this tax, which was perfectly legitimate, he couldn't in good conscience do it because he knew it would be too heavy a burden on them. Unlike many of even the Jewish leaders, Nehemiah was seeking to promote the welfare of God's people, even at great personal expense. I wonder, can you think of any government officials in our country, in our territory, federal government, anybody, who's come into office and said, you know what, I'm not going to accept a salary. We need to give that money back to the people. You don't see that very often, do you? But Nehemiah realizes in this case, this is the right thing to do because he was a man of integrity. Integrity even at great personal cost. Usually integrity requires a great personal cost. What is integrity though? Well, we could generally define it as doing what's right even when it's difficult. Doing what's right even when it's difficult. But I recently read this excellent definition by a Christian uh, several hundred years ago. He said this, integrity has three parts. One, devotion to the truth. Two, fidelity to one's promises. And three, a strict consistency between thoughts, words, and actions. A devotion to the truth, holding on to the truth. First of all, you have to know what the truth is, and then you have to hold on to it no matter what. Secondly, a fidelity to your promises. You have to keep your word. Are you known as a person who keeps his or her word. And thirdly, a strict consistency between thoughts, words, and actions. You don't say one thing and do another. You're consistent. To say it a different way, in our context, you're living under the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of your life. You're applying gospel principles, biblical truths, to every area of your life. You're not one person at church and one person at home and a different person at work. You're the same person all the way through. Nehemiah dealt with issues as they came up. And he dealt with them out of a place or a characteristic of integrity. But his, his central focus, despite all these distractions, he never had his focus taken off the central thing, which was to build the wall. That's what he was there to do. He wasn't there for personal profit. He didn't waste his time trying to buy up parcels of land or make a lot of money, although he could have, and that was almost expected by the governor. Instead, he lived humbly, he gave generously, he led by example, and he was a man of integrity. He was there to build the wall, and that's what he did. But then, Nehemiah faces several conspiracies. A conspiracy to discredit him, one to kidnap him, one to kill him, and another to try to show him up in front of the people. We see this in verses 1 to 5, beginning there. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. So everything's done except a few of the gates. Sanballat and Geshem, the same guys who were trying to attack them with physical force 
in the previous chapters, they sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But of course they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. And we'll find out what's written in that unsealed letter in a moment. But what they're seeking to do is to lure him away so they can kill him, or kidnap him, or both. And so this plain of Ono is about a full day's journey. It's located almost on the coast, uh, northwest of where Jerusalem is located. So you'd have to take a full day's journey there, spend at least a day talking to them, and a full day's journey back. And in that time, the work on the wall would have to, if not cease, at least it wouldn't be going forward as quickly as it should. But he knows this is a trap. He shows discernment, he shows resolution, and he shows an inflexibility of character which was appropriate to the situation. His discernment is especially noticeable. Why would he think that Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, these individuals who had just threatened to attack him with an army, have been doing everything they can to stop work on the wall. Why in the world would he think that their overtures of peace are actually real? Oh, come, we, we just want to talk together. Let's, let's work something out. We, we think we can come to a resolution. No, no, he's, he's not that dense. He shows discernment. And that, I remind us that as Christians, we are actually commanded to show discernment as well. If you're a Christian, it's commanded of all Christians in multiple places in the New Testament, one of them being 1 John 4.1, that we must develop and act out of Christian discernment. That passage in 1 John says this, test the spirits to see whether they are of God. That is, in that particular case, just because someone says they're speaking for God or preaching or they call themselves a pastor or they call themselves a Christian author or whatever it may be, doesn't mean they're actually speaking for God. Doesn't mean what they're saying actually matches up with biblical truth. And so we have to show discernment lest we might be led astray. And Nehemiah shows a great example of that. The open letter then after they've sent four letters back and forth, and each time he says, basically, I don't have time for you, and rightly so, they then send an open letter. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, except uh, back then it meant a great deal. It was a sign of disrespect and of criticism of Nehemiah's authority, because in the letter, what they actually put in there is a lie, a falsehood, that they want to perpetuate about him. They make it up, they put it in the letter, and because it's an open letter, as the, the mail carrier is going, anyone who wants to can grab the letter and read it, as opposed to one of the private letters before. And so they're actively trying to perpetuate these falsehoods about Nehemiah and what he's up against, or what he's trying to do, I should say, and his motivation behind it. He knows what this is, what this is and he, he has a calculated response to it as well. So they realize they couldn't stop the work, but they could try to destroy Nehemiah. And that's their go-to plan. So they seek to blackmail him. This is what the letter said. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. By the way, this is, this is so typical of gossip and lies. Oh, we heard from an anonymous source. Everyone's saying it. Oh, yeah, and so-and-so said it specifically. R really, where did they say that? When? What time? This is, this is clearly a fabrication. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. So, of course, it must be true. 
that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will go back to the king, that is the king in Persia. Come, let us confer together. Nehemiah, we're deeply concerned. We've heard this rumor about you that you want to become king. And, and we, we don't think it's really true, but we, we need to talk about this, Nehemiah. This is absurd. Interestingly, we're about to find out that Sanballat had actually paid the false prophets um, to say these things. And so this rumor is deriving from these enemies of Nehemiah and the people of God. They're making it up. Now they're spreading it, as is typical of those who are against God. But Nehemiah stands firm, verses 8 and 9. I love this. He said, I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking that their hands will get weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. Nehemiah is not taken in. He knows what they're doing, and he's not going to be bothered by their lies and the perpetuation of this sort of gossip that they've come up with themselves. And he, he even just says it out plainly. You're making this up yourselves. Leave me alone. Be quiet. And then he takes it to God. He, he knows what they're trying to do. He doesn't try to even really answer them. That is, he doesn't give them a point by point, this is why everything you say is false. He doesn't need to justify himself to them. Now there are some times when accusations might come against someone, especially someone in leadership, where they do need to respond, perhaps in a detailed way. But there are other times where they should just ignore the criticism. And he realizes this is one of those times. He stands firm and he prays. But then they say, okay, well, we, we can't do that, so now we're going to try to trick him into sinning. Verses 10 to 14, this is how they try to do it. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Dalia, the son of Metatabel, who was shut in at his home. So this is, this is a prophet, maybe an acquaintance or a friend. We're not sure if he's shut in because he's sick, and so Nehemiah is going to visit him because he's sick, or if because he's a prophet, this is sort of like um, Jeremiah or Ezekiel in the Old Testament, when they had an issue, or when they were trying to uh, explain to the Jewish people that there was some sort of issue, they would sometimes do very strange things, like uh, one, one time in the case of Ezekiel, he laid down in the middle of the street for several days on end in order to make a point about what God was going to do. Maybe that's what this prophet is doing, and he's locking himself in his home, making it publicly known, and Nehemiah goes to visit him to see, okay, what's the meaning of it? Either way, Nehemiah stops what he's doing, he goes to visit this individual, and here's what happens. He's told by the individual, let us meet in the house of God, that's the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me, so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name and discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Oh my God, he goes to God in prayer once again. Because of what they have done, remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. What they want him to do is desecrate the temple. 
They want him to go into the temple to seek asylum from apparently people who are trying to kill him. Now, if the threat of a whole army attacking the people and trying to attack Nehemiah himself, and the multiple veiled threats through their uh, desire to get him out of the city so that they can meet with him, if all that wasn't enough, it, it kind of begs the question why they think that this tactic is going to work with Nehemiah. He's shown himself to be there better in the sense of greater discernment and following the ways of God all the way along this process. But nevertheless, this, in one sense, this is a, a valid temptation. Or at least, it could appear that way. Because Nehemiah has been under threat the whole time he's been there. And it wouldn't be surprising if they had sent an assassin. They're not above that sort of action. But Nehemiah knew what the law of God was. And there were two reasons that he was not allowed to go into the temple. First, this is not explicit in the text, but it, it seems to be about 95% sure. Most likely, Nehemiah, because of his work with the royal family, he was a eunuch. This was typical for work in the royal family in Persia. You didn't have any uh, man working in and amongst the royal family who was not a eunuch. If that's the case, it was against the law of God for any eunuch to approach into the temple, even if they were a Jew. So on that ground, he was not allowed to go into the temple. But he was also not a Levite. And the Levite was the tribe of priests who were able to actually go into the temple proper. So he's not a Levite. He's probably a eunuch, so it's against the rules. But also, there is one exception. Exodus 21 and 1 Kings 1 tell us that asylum could be sought in the temple in extreme cases. However, you could only seek asylum in the temple for a few prescribed cases. And flight from a foreign enemy or assassin was not one of them. So even under that heading, it, it didn't apply for Nehemiah. So whatever the case was, whether all of these things were the case or, or just one of them, it, it didn't matter because under no circumstance was Nehemiah allowed to go into the temple to seek asylum. He understood that. Why? Because he understood what God said in his word, and he chose to obey it. And notice that Nehemiah responds, once again, not by attacking the false prophets even, whom Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem have set up and paid to give false prophecies. He doesn't attack them. He doesn't attack his persecutors. Instead, he takes it to the Lord. This is a interest, there, there are many interesting applications here for us, but one of these is that there are many who call themselves prophets, pastors, Bible teachers, Christian authors, whatever the case might be who are nothing of the kind. They're not Christians at all. They're not speaking for God. Nehemiah had to deal with that. We deal with it still today. In fact, it seems to have become quite common in our day and age for such individuals not only to thrive, but to make a really good living off their false prophecies and their false teachings. Once again, we need discernment to know the true from the false. How do you gain discernment, by the way? The primary way a Christian gains discernment is by digging into the Word of God and allowing the Spirit of God that every Christian has to guide them. If you know what's true, you'll be able to sort out what's false much more easily when it comes along. We must know what God's Word says. And so even though these individuals were prophets, and you're supposed to respond to what prophets say, you're supposed to do what the prophets say in Old Testament Israel, these were false prophets. And Nehemiah has the discernment to understand that. And he works against it. Think of how he must have felt, by the way, with that one individual. He goes to visit him. He takes his own time and initiative to go visit this individual 
in this individual who's supposed to be a prophet of the one true God. You might think he might actually be an ally of Nehemiah. He's been paid, Nehemiah finds this out later, but he's been paid to lie to Nehemiah and try to get him to disobey the law of God. And then other quote-unquote prophets are used as well to lamblast him and to attack his person and his character. No doubt that was a bit hard to take for Nehemiah, but he stays strong in the Lord. He takes it to the Lord and leaves it there. And then we see the wall is completed in verses 15 to 19. Something interesting here, remarkable really, 52 days to complete that wall. That's astounding progress. 52 days. They constructed the wall also, apparently, in the middle of the summer months. That's not when you begin a building project in Israel. If any of you ever get a chance to go to Israel, if you ever get a chance to go in the summer months, you will quickly realize that you do not begin building projects there, especially ones where you have to stay outdoors the whole daylight time. And yet, God gives them wonderful blessing. But in verse 16, we see the real reason they were able to finish this so quickly. Verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, that the wall had been done in 52 days, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. You remember back to chapter 1? The whole impetus for Nehemiah to leave Persia in his cushy position, to go to Jerusalem for a time to help the people rebuild the wall, the major impetus there was for the cause of God among the nations. Because God's people were, were called into disrepute, and God's name subsequently was called into disrepute. And now, through the building of this wall, God has clearly given them the ability to do this because normally a group of people would not have been able to finish this wall in this sort of time. Even the nations around them who do not believe in the one true God acknowledge their God must be behind this. He's helping them. And so you see, in a sense, Nehemiah's initial motivation and his initial goal has at least partially been accomplished. God's name has now been elevated, not just among the Jewish people, but even among the nations that are around them. It's a testimony to God. Because God does, and we're so glad He does, He works through faithful people. But it's He who does the work. It's He who does the work. It's that wonderful illustration of uh, a father with his son or daughter. And they want to help him build something, a, a bookshelf or a cabinet. And so they come over, and, and of course the, the father is very happy to have their help, and say, can, can I hammer in the nails? And so the little child goes over and grabs the hammer, which they can barely pick up. And of course the father puts his hand around the child and says, yes, come help me. And they nail them in together. And then the child runs inside. Mommy, mommy, look what I built. Now really the child didn't build anything. They were instrumental. They did try to help. They did the best they could. And of course the father knows that and he delights in those moments with his children. So too God allows us to have a small part in what he's doing in the world. Especially for those who are his children. But it's still he who is doing the work. Like that wonderful heavenly father that he is. But these individuals continue taunting. They continue campaigns of fear. And Nehemiah adds a footnote for us in verse 17, which is quite striking. In those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah. Why would they be sending letters to this enemy? And replies from Tobiah kept coming back to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, 
since he was a son-in-law to Shechaniah, etc., etc., etc. Basically, he had married into a wealthy Jewish family. So even though he's an Ammonite, even though it was against the law of God, this wealthy Jewish family had allowed one of their daughters to marry this man. Do you see the long-range consequences of disobeying God? In that moment, probably the Jewish family thought, oh, this is a great tie. He's wealthy, we're wealthy, this will be a great way to push the family forward. I mean, after all, he's an influential guy over in this area in the Persian Empire. There's all sorts of reasons they could have come up with, excuses really, for why this was okay. But it wasn't okay, because God said it wasn't okay. They went against it anyway. And then you see this spiral of all sorts of consequences from these sinful actions, one after the other after the other, to the point where Tobiah has actually tried to get Nehemiah assassinated. He's tried to use physical harm against the Jewish people. And what Nehemiah tells us here is that he now finds out that many of the nobles, those same nobles who wouldn't work on the wall in chapter 3, verse 5, those same nobles, why wouldn't they work on the wall? Oh, well, it just so happened that they were in an alliance with Tobiah. We also find out in Nehemiah 13.4, this must have been a bit of a shock to Nehemiah, although maybe nothing shocked him at this point. I'm not sure. But in chapter 13, verse 4, even the high priest, Eliashib, was allied to Tobiah. So a great many of the Jewish leaders had been sellouts to godless individuals and pagan societies around them. But what we're going to find now is that there's not going to be any more full frontal attacks or a threat of full frontal attacks. Now it's going to be subterfuge. It's going to be infiltration. It's going to be bribery. So the war hasn't ended. It's just gone underground. Which is actually a great picture for us as Christians. Uh, sometimes I, I think we can maybe be a little too naive or simplistic in our thinking. That is, if, if people are not overtly persecuting us as Christians, well then there's no spiritual battle going on. No, no. Even if the war is not overt, That just means the war is underground. A spiritual battle is raging around us at every single moment. Nehemiah realizes this, and we'll see how he deals with it in the rest of his book. But then we reach chapter 7, and we get another list. And we might think, "Uh uh-oh, Nehemiah, why did you have to do this? Especially when we realize that essentially, after the first few verses, he just copies and pastes from Ezra chapter 2. Why would you need to do that, Nehemiah? We already had it in Ezra, and we didn't like the list there, so why would you throw the list over here? What's the point? It's a really important point, actually, because he sets up leaders among the Jewish people. Now that he's finished his work, he has to set up someone who's going to lead the people. He copies this list because it's very important for who the leaders are going to be, who the families in Israel are, because you had to be able to trace your genealogy back to show which tribe you were in. Because based upon which tribe you were in, that also had repercussions for which land was yours as a family. It had repercussions for who you could and could not marry. You couldn't marry outside of your tribe in most cases. And it also had repercussions for how you worshipped at the temple. Because the Levitical tribe was the only tribe who could provide priests for the temple. And as we're about to find out, there are some issues here that Nehemiah has to deal with. But let's look very briefly at seven leadership principles Nehemiah shows us in this list. We're not going to read through the whole chapter, but I'll point out the verses that help us understand these leadership principles that Nehemiah shows. First of all, a a true leader has to honor spiritual priorities. In verse 1, 
of chapter 7. He says, After the walls had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place. I appointed gatekeepers, musicians, and Levites. The gatekeepers, primarily established for the physical well-being of the people to guard the gates, they also had a spiritual function, we're going to find out in chapter 13, because they had to make sure that the gates were not open on the Sabbath day. This is extremely important. Nehemiah is going to have to deal with something coming up in chapter 13 on this very point. But especially the singers and the Levites were there primarily for worship. The singers led the people in praising God. And the Levites, only those who met the biblical criteria, by the way, were there to lead the people in worship and sacrifice to God as God had commanded. Now, remember, what, how did Nehemiah begin the building of the wall? He began with the sheep gate and the wall right around the temple. He prioritized spiritual things right at the beginning, and he prioritizes spiritual things here. We finished the wall. Let's make sure that our spiritual house is in order. He continues to place worship of the one true God as the priority. I wonder, how do you prioritize worship of the one true God? Husband? Christian husband? How, how do you prioritize worship of the one true God for you and your spouse? Mother and father in a Christian family, how do you prioritize worship within your home with your children? How do you teach them to prioritize worship? How do you do it individually and how do you do it in your home? Secondly, he valued reliable partners in chapter 7, verse 2. He said, I put in charge of Jerusalem, my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, just to be a little confusing, very similar names, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Integrity and he feared God. That is an excellent litmus test for a good leader. Not complicated, but extremely important. That is, he was reliable, he could, count, he could be counted on to be reliable, and he was reverent to the things of God. Both of these are essential qualities in leaders. But thirdly, verse 3, he recognized specific dangers. He appointed residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near the houses. That is, the houses in which they lived, you remember he had appointed them to build the section of the wall that was closest to their home. He appoints different people throughout the city, all the way around the circumference of the wall, to act as guards. Why? Because he recognized specific dangers still lurked ahead. He looked ahead, as any good leader must, and he realized that the people were still in danger and that attacks could easily resume if they weren't careful. So he puts them on guard. Fourthly, he encourages strategic planning. Verse 4, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. What he realizes, once again, looking at the big picture as a good leader must do, he realizes the number of permanent residents inside the city is not sufficient for that size of a city. They're, they're maybe working at 20 to 30% capacity in the city. That's not okay. Because if you're going to repel an attack, or if you're going to grow in strength as, as a city like that needs to be, which also offers protection to the surrounding areas, you have to grow with how many people are in the city. And that means houses still need to be rebuilt. The wall's been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. A few homes here and there have been rebuilt. But many of the homes are still in disrepair or completely destroyed. So you have to build all these new homes. And he had to encourage individuals from the surrounding area, farmers perhaps, for some of them to uproot everything and come move into the city to repopulate the city. This was going to be a big project. It was a bit of strategic planning that was going to take years to fulfill. And yet he sets it in motion. He recognizes the need, starts working right away to see it fulfilled. Fifthly, a leader must seek and respond to divide, divine guidance. Chapter 7, verse 5. 
Nehemiah shows us as a habitual action in his life, seeking and responding to divine guidance. He says, so my God put this into my heart. Over and over again, he's been seeking God's guidance. He goes to the Lord in prayer about almost everything, time and time again. And then, once he has the guidance of God, he acts on it. He responds. You know, I think if we're honest as Christians, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I think we've all probably fallen into one of two traps. Either, as we've seen previously, we don't do as Nehemiah often did and seek the guidance of God as our first priority, our first step. Maybe we seek our own guidance, we kind of take counsel with ourselves, we talk to our spouse, we talk to someone else, a friend. And and God's guidance is one of the last that we actually seek. He's further down the list. Or, if we don't fall into that trap, maybe we've experienced the other trap more often. That is, we seek the guidance of God and then when he gives it, We say, eh, don't like that. Can you give me another option? This happens over and over again. Um, In pastoral counseling situations, someone is having a challenging situation. It's a true challenge. Pastor, what do I do? What does God's word say? Okay. Um, Read this passage and, and tell me what it says. Oh, it says this. That's your answer. Oh, no, I can't do that. You see, we want God to speak, but as soon as he speaks, if it's inconvenient for us, we don't want to actually follow his way. Or we, we hear a sermon in which a passage of scripture is opened up to us, explained and applied, and we say, oh yeah, the, the Holy Spirit's convicting me about that, but that's just inconvenient for me. I don't really want to respond to that bit. So I'll ignore that or hope that God gives me a different answer. But you see, that's, that's not the way a true mature Christian needs to respond. We have to seek God's guidance, and then we have to respond to the guidance he gives. Nehemiah understood this and he practiced it. Sixthly, we have to obey biblical teachings. This goes right along with the previous one. Nehemiah realized that a pure faith was essential for the people to thrive under God's holy rulership. A pure faith, a holy faith, you might say, a set-apart faith. This is commanded in the New Testament for Christians, by the way. He says to Christians, come out from the world and be separate. Separate yourselves to God and his truth, and his holiness. That means you have to obey biblical teachings. In verses 64 and 65, it said, this is, uh, this is what Ezra had said in chapter 2 of his book when he gave this uh, genealogy. Nehemiah is repeating it because the issue has not been fully settled. They searched in their family records. Who searched? The Levites, the, the priestly line. But some of them were not able to find if they were actually related within that tribe. They, they couldn't find their genealogies. They couldn't prove their genealogies. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food, which was only for the priests. And they had to wait until the high priest could go before God at a particular time, as the Bible described, in order to seek his counsel on the matter. And until then, they had to sit out. Now, This is striking for us, and it actually brings a great application for us in our own day. Nehemiah sought to obey God's clear direction. These individuals were individuals who had given up what they had had in Persia for 70 years. Most of them had never lived in Israel before, had never seen Jerusalem. They voluntarily give up what they had to move back to Jerusalem. They helped to rebuild the temple. They helped to rebuild the wall. And they say, hey, we're part of the Levitical priesthood. We want to serve God in the temple. 
They're God-loving people. They're sincere. But they did not meet the biblical requirement. They did not meet God's criteria. And Nehemiah says, no. Ezra said, no, you cannot. Until it is established very clearly from God directly, one way or the other. Yet there's a, a prevalent mindset. I'm sure it was available in Nehemiah's day. Well, come on, they love the Lord. Just let them serve. I'm sure it'll be okay. We actually find this in the, the several hundred years after Nehemiah's time when this exact thing does happen. Individuals either buy their way into the priesthood, even though they're not even Levites, or we even get an, an instance where the high priest is not of the Levitical line at all, or where a king also tries to become the high priest, something that God expressly forbade. But you know what? This sort of idea, well, they love the Lord, they want to serve Him, just let them do their thing, is very prevalent today too, especially in the last several decades, if not the last century. There's been a great attack to, and a desire to water down or completely ignore what God says about the church, how it should function, and who the individuals are who should lead it, and the criteria they must meet in order to lead the church as pastors or deacons. You heard our announcement earlier about a few uh, deacons and nominations that we're looking for. The reason we're providing you with the biblical requirements and sort of the, the guide from God and his word, the criteria, is because we have to follow God's prescription. For any leaders in the church, we're not able to water it down. It's not enough to just say, oh, well, they love the Lord, so it's okay. They have a desire to do it, it's okay. They have certain giftings, it's okay. Irrelevant. We have to go to God and His Word, and He's extremely clear on what is and is not allowed, and who is and is not allowed to serve in those prescribed roles. And even if we don't understand why He says what He says, it's our job to say, you're God and I'm not. Your Word is always true, and we submit to it. We don't come up with our own way because his truth is inconvenient for our desires. Nehemiah understood that, and he follows once again the prescribed truth of God's word. But finally, leadership-wise, in chapter 7, he encourages generous giving. At the end of the chapter 7, he calls the people to give generously towards the work of the temple and to the Levites as they're getting the worship of the one true God back to full force away, the way that the Old Testament described. And he says this, the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 bowls, and 500 garments for the priests. Who's the governor? Nehemiah. So not only has he been lending out money with no interest to Jewish people who are in need, not only has he been paying his entire salary, not only has he been paying to house and clothe and feed multiple foreign dignitaries, not only has he left Persia and his cushy job, giving up significant amount of money to do it. Not only has he given up his time, energy, and effort to work on the wall himself alongside of his servants and alongside of all the people, but he also then gives generously. Like, if there was ever a person in Jerusalem at that moment who, who may have been able to come up with an excuse, you know what, I've been generous enough. It was Nehemiah. And yet, for the man of God, they realize the generosity that a Christian should have, a follower of God should have, knows no bounds. God gives to us in order for us to give back to his work. And that's what Nehemiah realizes. He gives generously yet again. So this leads us to a few conclusions, three of them particularly. First of all, God is compassionate. In the Old Testament, many people have this idea that God is wrathful and angry all the time. 
This, you'll, you'll see this trope all over the place in all sorts of books and media outlets. But if you look at what the Old Testament says itself, what God says about himself in the Old Testament, more than any other characteristic by far, do you know the characteristic that is named for the one true God in the Old Testament? It's not his wrath, it's not his judgment, it's not his anger. It's his compassion. His compassion especially for those who are either in sin, that's on the spiritual front, or his compassion physically, we might say, for those who are poor and destitute and downtrodden and, and are not being treated right. And we see his compassion through, in many cases, Nehemiah's actions here in the Old Testament. The people were being exploited in many different respects, and Nehemiah goes up against all of that. Why? Because the law of, the God, of God, the one true God, prohibited that. God uses Nehemiah to confront these individuals. He will not allow his people to be exploited, even though it cost Nehemiah great financial burden. So too the Lord causes and calls his people today to be generous, to live for others, to help those who are being exploited in society, to give generously. As Solomon said in Proverbs 19.7, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and God will pay him back what is given. That's what Nehemiah in a nutshell, we might say, all of his generosity could be accomplished in that one verse. He had pity on the poor. He lent and he gave generously, trusting that God would give back what was needed when it was needed. That's how we must act as well. Secondly, a godly leader leads by example. Nehemiah had many marks of leadership, that's clear. But one of the strongest was that he led by example. It's easy to get up in front of one individual or a group of individuals and say, go do this this way. It's much more difficult to say, go and do it this way, and if you don't know what that looks like, come live with me for a while, and I'll show you. But living by example is part of leadership. It's not just go and do this. It's also come and see how it's done. This is, I mean, one of the glorious truths of the New Testament is that the gospel was not just a message that was proclaimed. We proclaim the message now, but it was a person, Jesus, who came and lived it. He is our example to follow, we're told. Now, if you're a Christian, and I, and I know many in our congregation are in this boat, if you're a Christian, and maybe you've never seen a godly example of how to live as a godly husband or a godly wife, how, how to live as a godly father or mother or grandparent, what, what does it mean to be a godly man or a godly woman? What does it mean to be a person of integrity, godly integrity, like Nehemiah, as we've seen? If you're in that situation, maybe it's because um, you're a first-generation Christian, your parents weren't Christians, or even if your parents claim to be Christians, maybe they weren't actually living out what God's Word had to say. In either case, one of the best things you can do is dig into God's Word. There's plenty of examples there. But also find a Christian brother or sister who is mature in their faith and say, hey, could I spend some time with you? I don't, I don't know how to live this Christian life. How, how do I spend time in God's word? Oh, here, let me show you. This is what you do. And you can learn from their example. How, how do I discipline my children in a way that's biblically appropriate according to biblical standards? Why don't, you, why don't you come over to our house? Let's talk about it. You can see how we interact with our children. How, how, how do I communicate with my spouse in a way that is along biblical lines? Instead of just resorting to whatever I grew up with or whatever I've seen around me. Why don't you come over? We'll show you. 
an example can be so helpful, and I highly recommend, especially since we have so many first-generation Christians, that you seek out a godly, maturing Christian or Christian family that you can spend time with if you are uncertain of how to live out your Christian faith. But finally, the enemies of God are subtle. We see this. Sometimes they're not so subtle because they just said, we're going to kill you in this particular case. Other times they are being subtle. They're bribing and they're, they're taunting. But in either case, God is sufficient. Oftentimes challenges come one after the other. Shakespeare rightly said in his wonderful play Hamlet, when sorrows come, they come not single spies but in battalions. When challenges come, when sorrows come, when difficulties arise, they just come in groups. Isn't that the way it always seems? It just seems one after the other after the other. That's normal life in a fallen world, unfortunately. But as James says in James 4, 6, God gives more grace to his people in those times. He gives grace to meet the challenge. Annie Flint wrote an excellent hymn based on that truth. Let me read you a few verses. She said, He giveth more grace as the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as the labors increase. To added affliction he addeth his mercy, and to multiplied trials he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. No matter what you're facing, and I know some of you are facing challenging times right now, no matter what sorrows, personal challenges, discouragements you are facing, God is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Don't miss the last two lines of that wonderful hymn reminding us of biblical truth. Out of his infinite riches in Jesus. Remember Jesus? Infinitely loving. Infinitely gracious. Infinitely righteous. Infinitely glorious. Infinitely beautiful. And he accomplished an atonement that was infinite in value to pay for the sins of those whom God had appointed to eternal life. And out of that infinite Wealth of riches from Jesus. James 4, 6. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He gives and gives and gives and gives again. So be encouraged, Christian. As Nehemiah was. He kept encouraging himself in the Lord and his truth. Be encouraged in those difficult situations. And flee to Christ. And remember the infinite riches we have in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ and the infinite riches he provides. Help us to remember when we're tempted to forget and when we're struggling. Help us to remember. We ask all this in your name. Amen.